What is going on, guys? It is time for another episode of the Chasing Waypoints podcast. And this time around, we've got some, eh, I don't know, what are we going to do? Another in the bivouac, uh, but a little more technical. Going to be talking rally bikes, rally experiences, and all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, with none other than Mr. Scott Spears. Scott Spears is one of the, uh, or the lead guy for Freedom Rally Racing, as far as the technical side of goes. If you follow him on Instagram, you're seeing his posts of him working on the bikes and setting these things up. Uh, Robert Mann, the whole group at Freedom Rally Racing. Uh, all of those guys, really, really cool bunch. Scott Spears, though, stands out. He's got the, all the mechanical knowledge and keeps these bikes going 100% of the time. So absolutely stoked to have him on the show for today's episode. So we'll be getting started in just a moment. But yeah. All right. We got all of our Dakar entrance done. I hope you guys had a chance to listen to that episode. And then we have got Kota Rally two weeks from today getting started. So entries for that closed up on the 1st of August. But we're almost there. Almost there. September 10th is day one of the Kota Rally. So hopefully you guys will be tuning in. I'll hope to get uh, some reports from the guys out there and see how everything is going. But absolutely excited. Get this rally season underway. All right. Well, that being said, it is 10 a.m. on the dot from when I am recording this. Let's get this over to Scott Spears and see if we can get him on the line here in just a second. So what's been going on? Everybody out riding their bikes, doing some rally stuff. What are we doing? Hmm? We need to know. Also, might as well uh, might as well get that part started. So I'm going to be doing some stuff, trying to figure out where we're uh, where we're best to meet. I want to do some kind of one-on-one stuff with it, get you guys a way to get in contact with me directly, and so we can all chat about growing the sport of rally here in the U.S. So definitely looking forward to that. All right, let's turn the party down here while we wait for him to jump on the call. Get this turned up here. Nice. Yeah, not going to lie, still excited, man. Two hours and 45 minutes of that episode talking to all the guys from Dakar. So I am excited that we were able to get that done. And all the other episodes in between here. Let's see if you guys heard already. We talked to Willem Abnett, uh talking about rally out in South Africa uh, this past week. Uh, before that, we talked to Patrick Ray as the Coast to Coast Rally, talking about that. So absolutely excited. I really did. Um, I, I did look up all that information on the uh, the Coast to Coast Rally, and I'm excited about it. I love that it ends in Puerto Escondido. I've never been to that region. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to, to get out and explore a little bit. So Project 501 getting wrapped up finally. Finally got all of the parts and everything that I need for it. So looking forward to get that done. Then the 790 Adventure going under the knife. Going to do some, uh, some final detail work, you know, make sure everything is, is dialed in. And then, uh, and then we're going to go off to doing some, uh, some suspension testing. So going to start working a little bit more on that side of things and just getting the bike really, really comfortable for me to ride. Uh, I want to get a final weight on it. Uh, some people have been asking about, you know, hey, what does, uh, what does this thing weigh? What does it compare like uh, to a 790 uh, original or 890, the original bike as far as the widths go and things like that. So definitely going to be looking at getting that uh, figured out, dialed in, uh, get the ergonomics right. 
uh, I had gone, you know, interesting enough, I had gone to a hydraulic clutch setup, right? So Magura makes a hydraulic clutch setup for that bike. And I was able to get that on there, but it just didn't quite feel the way that I wanted it to. Uh, it accomplished what I wanted that I can run an aftermarket lever, but I don't know that that's the, uh, the ultimate answer as far as performance goes. So I'll probably be switching back to a clutch cable, uh, instead of the hydraulic setup on the 790. But anyway, with that being said, looks like we've got, uh, Scott on the line. Let's see, Scott, you there? Hey, I'm, I'm here. How about you? Uh, I am. It is. <laughs> it's Sunday. <laughs> it, it is Sunday. It's, it's the special project for the, uh, it's the honeydew list Sunday. Oh, <laughs> Well, you know, the bright side is you get through those quick enough, there might still be time to play. Yeah, you know, it, it, maybe someday, you know, <laughs> right now it just seems like uh, between everything that's going on, it's it's wide open. But uh, it's definitely like I, I like to work under pressure. There we go. Well, yeah, hey, I've uh, I've seen that you speaking of pressure, a few different bikes that you're maintaining for the uh, Kansas City guys. And yeah, yeah. So what, yeah, no. tell me, uh, tell me about, I mean, that's how I met you. Like, you know, I started seeing the posts from Robert and then, you know, I saw you know, what you were doing and I, it took me a minute to connect the dots that you guys are on the same team. Correct. Yeah, it was, it was funny. So freedom rally racing was, uh, you know, uh, a, um, a development, you know, when I was working at a dealership, Grandview, uh, uh, excuse me, freedom cycles in Grandview, Missouri. And, and Mike Stanfield was the owner of freedom cycles and, uh, between Luis Belaustegui and then Mike Stanfield, they decided they wanted to do the Dakar one day. And I was actually working for Letco, which is a, a competing KTM dealership at the time. And uh, Mike reached out to me and he goes, hey, do you want to be my mechanic for the Dakar? And I said, without question, absolutely. You know, because I, I had no, no, no idea that ever in my lifetime I would be able to do something like that. Well, at the time, you know, he says, well, we got Luis too with the 150. And... Um, I said, okay, you know, so I had two bikes, never been to the Dakar, never knew what I was going to do. And, uh, next thing you know, this collaboration between Letco cycles and freedom cycles and, uh, you know, was born. And, and then, you know, in the year, uh, after, uh, the first Dakar, we went freedom rally racing would be born. And, and then ultimately it would, uh, it would be, uh, tucked away, uh, kind of, you know, in storage, so to speak. And then Robert Mann would approach me and, and we would, uh, work together to partner up and and bring it back nice and so how i mean how long was it was it on the back burner for so um yeah unfortunately uh in in 14 uh mike stanfield would pass away in a scuba diving accident and um that kind of left the freedom rally racing team up in limbo and I was told uh, by the, the family that I could use the truck one more time, but everything else was being liquidated. So they started selling the bikes, um, you know, any equipment, but anything that was associated with the truck was still intact. Mm-hmm. And so in 15, I, I would take Freedom Rally Racing by myself and I would support David Reeve, um, who was uh, from Zambia, Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would be, this would be his third attempt at the Dakar. Um, you know, one with me uh, in 14 and then one with, uh, another race team and he would end up finishing the race in 15 with my support. 
essentially, I had um, you know an additional mechanic with me, uh, Vincent Crosby, and then I had Jillian Dykes with me, and she kind of acted as my admin. So she was handling all the paperwork. She was doing riders' meetings and briefings while Vincent and I were, were doing the team. After that, um, the family said, you know, that that's over. Um, you know, we, we they took the truck and they parked it in a, a barn and it sat there for six years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So then uh, this last year uh, in November, October, actually, Robert and uh, Luke Valentin and I got together and, and decided uh, that, uh, yeah, let's let's do this. Um, so for the last six months, uh, it's been a uh, between, uh, you know, Robert and myself and, and just a whole group of wonderful people. We've been trying to build this uh, this team up to be able to provide a professional level support to anybody who was interested in doing Dakar or even rally racing in general, just getting rally racing and, and rally raid exposed to the American public. Nice. And yeah. And that, that was something like, you know, we, we talked about in depth of, uh, with Robert, you know, getting, getting people into it and, and supporting it and, and doing that where, um, I mean, I, where are you based out of and what's the rally scene like there? <laughs> so interestingly enough, I, I I live in Kansas City, so we, we live actually uh, about an hour south of Kansas City in a little town called Osawatomie. Mm-hmm. Robert lives about a half an hour north of me uh, in Olathe or Overland Park area, and then uh, he has the Moto Farm, which is 25 minutes south of me. So mm-hmm. we have, uh, and then Letco is, is obviously up here too, but um, so... Yeah, we live in the Midwest. Uh, there is no rally scene. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> every yeah, everything is ninety and one eighty. You know, so mm-hmm. it's it's uh, there's there's you know left and rights and and you know you go straight for long distances. But uh, with that said, we have the Flint Hills out here. Um, you know, so Luke started putting together some some rally um, books, mm-hmm. some road books, and just trying to teach people the basics. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's how we got more people involved here. And then we got some kids uh, who, who were involved. Um, you know, Kevin, uh, Kevin and, and um, oh gosh, my, my mind's going blank. But um, we had a bunch of guys, you know, interested from Kansas. And then, you know, so between Luke and Robert, the Kansas rally team developed and then they needed somebody to support the rally team. Well, how are we going to do this? And that's where Freedom Rally stepped in and you know ultimately uh you know we can provide that that next level of service yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's first of all it's a super impressive rig i got to see it finally in person unfolded at sanking team when you guys were here for that training and so was that is, i mean is that how it, it, so how it was well yeah you know so initially that truck was designed uh, by mike stanfield uh, with input from myself mm-hmm. Uh, by a company called Aluma Line up in Iowa. And after our first Dakar uh, in 2011, um, so in 2011, we rented space uh, from the Polaris Argentinian ATV team. And essentially, all they had were two trucks. They were both uh, crew cab Dodge Ram 2500s. Um, they weren't dualies. And they basically had a, a black box, like just a, a pickup bed shell type box on the back. And then they had a rack on top. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had to support two bikes out of this truck while they're supporting two ATVs out of this truck. And it was just, it was chaotic. Yeah. It was, I, I, the pictures, I, I, I was reminiscing. I was going back through pictures and, and it just, it, it looked 
so unprofessional and, and, you know, but yet we managed. And at that point, Mike came back and, and said, you know, we, we got to do something different. Yeah. And, and then built that beast of a truck. <laughs> and then we built that beast. So we decided, well, we wanted it uh, four wheel drive. We wanted it, uh, you know, basically a light, fast assistance vehicle. Mm-hmm. And looking at what they had and looking what everybody else had down there at the Dakar, I mean, and, you know, everybody's running Unimogs and, uh, you know, the big man, um, mm-hmm. excuse me, assistance vehicles and stuff. And, and for us, it just wasn't practical, especially when we were going back and forth between the states and, and the hosting com- country. Mm-hmm. We had to figure out a way to get the, the container or excuse me, get the truck and all the equipment, bikes, tires, everything. We had to get it there in one piece. Mm-hmm. And so when we designed the truck, we designed it to fit inside a high cube container. So essentially, there's a rack that goes on top, you pull the rack off, you pull the two outside wheels off, and you pull the outside fenders off, mm-hmm. and you can back it into a high cube container with about three inches on each side and about six inches on the top. Well, that, <laughs> that enabled us to, you know, put all the bikes in, put all of the, the tires. I mean, because at that time, you know, one of, at one point, I had five bikes. Mm-hmm. We had two tires, excuse me, two tire changes per day per bike at 14 days. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how many tires we had for each bike. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of a uh, lot of logistics that went along with it. And, um, you know, but ultimately what would, you know, what our concern was is we one year sent our, our motorhome down there and had all of our riders gear in it. Mm-hmm. And that motorhome got into the port and it was broken into Oh, uh, no. They climbed in through the the top vent inside the port, and they they climbed in and and they just they robbed it blind. Everything everything was removed. Everything was gone. Anything that wasn't nailed down in that motorhome, we ultimately ended up you know getting rid of the motorhome. I'm not sure if we got rid of it. Down, but it was um, you know that's a lot of money to lose. You know, so that's why ultimately we built it to go into a container. So we had it would go to France. It would, uh, we would pick it up in France. I would, uh, collect it. I'd put it together and I'd drive it over to the, uh, uh, ASO mm-hmm. and then put it onto the truck. Dang, man, that's, that's crazy. I mean, that sucks. Cause it's you, that you show up and I mean, yeah, just, just the gear part of it. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well you go to the Dakar. That means whatever's in that gear bag is like the best set of gloves that you did all sorts of testing on the pants, the, the helmets, the, all the, just the things that are like, this is going to help me get through this long grueling event. This is my gear, my comfort. And then you show up and it's not there. Yeah, absolutely. And and then it turns into piecing it together with whatever you can find locally. Yes. Yeah. And that's just it. We were, uh, we were shopping, you know, at every single motorcycle dealership down there. Um, and mind you, you know, dealerships in other parts of the country are different. You know, the United States, we stock a lot of inventory. Uh, a lot of times that that's not the case in some of these other countries. So, you know, you have to order stuff. So it was definitely call who you know men make stuff happen. And, you know, it wasn't that money was no object, but we certainly weren't going to let anything interfere with our ability to start the Dakar. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's that's crazy. And I mean, and that's good. I mean, I know there's a lot of manufacturers out there that, that are usually willing to step up to the plate. Um, and and like, I mean, once you get out of the U.S., uh, I, I know this because you go like 2X, single X or large or whatever. Every country's version of a large is different. 
Oh my God. (laughs) So (laughs) struggle for me is real with regards to, uh, uh, KTM, uh, and, uh, clothing. So for example, you know, being in a a KTM employee, you know, working for a corporate, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, everything I own is two to three sizes larger than what I would normally wear just to make it fit. Yeah. So, I always, that was funny. I always asked that to some of the reps that would come in when I worked at the, at the motorcycle shop at San Diego BMW, I was like, okay, so is this a uh, extra large in us or, or European? No. <laughs> Cause there's a difference. <laughs> you understand? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. One, one is sausage casing and the other one is like, okay, this fits. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, the truck, you know, the truck ultimately was designed, you know, with uh, the, the purpose of supporting riders out of the left side of the truck. Mm-hmm. And then all mechanical work would fall on the right side of the truck. Mm-hmm. And we chose the right side because on some of the liaisons, you had to pull off on the side of the highway to be able to take care of your rider. And certainly if we were working on the left side, you know, then we're opened up into the highway. Mm-hmm. So we opened up everything on the right side so we could work on the on uh, say changing a piston in Luis's bike after a uh, after a long stage of sand. I mean, it's just all kinds of little things. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and that's that's the detail work. You know, making sure. Well, first of all, I mean, it's in the name of safety, but it's thinking about those things before you even head down, because I don't think that's an on the fly decision. Oh, hey, let's no. just switch over thing <laughs> everything over to this side. There is so much so much thought and detail that goes into a. a, a gosh, a, a race like this or, and that's not just on the, um, on the rider side, but on the technical side, because you've got to think about all the possibilities you mind you, you want to give your rider the best opportunity to be able to finish the race. Mm-hmm. And you have to have that equipment on the truck and you have to be in a position to be you know, ready to do so. So, um, you know, those bigger Unimogs, like the big KTM support trucks, those things are great, you know, getting to the bivouac and they, they've got everything that you possibly could, you know, imagine inside of them. But if you needed to assist somebody on the side of the road, that truck was committed to all the riders, not just one rider. So that's why we had to make a truck small enough and, mm-hmm. you know, compact. It had air, it has welders, it has water, we can pressure wash, you know, we can basically rebuild a, an engine, you know, uh, a bike complete out of that truck. And uh, that was my goal is because the truck is an extension of my, my hands. Mm -hmm. It's, it's another tool to me. So having something that was, uh, you know, capable and, um, was, was, uh, highly important to us. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And I mean, and there's, there's nothing worse than getting somewhere and, you know, not having the right tool, having to improvise or flat out, just not having anything to be able to improvise with, which is, yeah, would, would be the worst case scenario. So you you mentioned something. Um, what do you you work for KTM Corporate? What do you, what do you do for them? So I'm a field support or a field service rep, mm-hmm. kind of like a field engineer. I uh, I run around the country helping dealers, uh, mechanics, uh, or fixing things that they can't. So um, you know, I'll fly in and and uh, you know, customer may have had his motorcycle at a dealership for you know weeks or months or whatever whether it's a back-ordered part or it's a, you know, just a diagnostic situation they can't figure out. And I'll, uh, I'll be called in to go take care of it and find the root cause of the problem and address it, um, you know, and then make sure everybody is uh, up to speed as far as technically trained or, you know, whether it's a customer, maybe I need to educate them. 
So I, I do a little bit of teaching. I do a lot of wrenching. Um, I do a lot of, uh, uh, yeah, a, a lot of fires, I, I guess, putting it. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So you're, you're, you're special ops for KTM. I'm special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had, I, I had my experience, uh, with that when I was at BMW, cause they had a, a similar thing and, yeah, it, it's when when we had somebody coming in from, you know, the mothership, it, it was a big deal. And it was a bike that was a problem child. And it's nothing to reflect on the brand. It's just every brand is going to have that one problem child situation uh, at some point. And it's what you guys do that helps, you know, get it. And usually it ends up being something dumb. I mean, yeah. It, <laughs> It's just it. Uh, you know, motorcycles have become highly technologically advanced, and uh, a lot of people don't understand that. You know, although or albeit mechanically, you know, they they, they work. The, the the electronics, the Bluetooth features, the extra, you know, suspension. Uh, you know, um, God, what am I saying? Adjustable suspension, electronic suspension. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, computer controlled stuff, CAN buses. A lot of the problems we see out in the field now aren't related to mechanical, but more related to technology to computers and so i found myself having to learn how to be an it technician as well as you know a mechanical technician so and it's um you know so with that said you look at um uh skills uh there's there's not a lot of skill out there anymore uh you know skill is kind of fading people aren't interested in working on stuff if they are they're working on stuff as a hobby not as a job so they're not going to school for it so you know, it's just, it's a trade that, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's just every dealership is looking for, you know, uh, skilled labor and, and man, we got to figure out how to get that skilled labor back into the dealerships, mm-hmm. not to eliminate my position, but to give the customer a better, uh, you know, end game, a better use of their product, you know, without having to spend a lot of time on the dealership working on it. But yeah, you're right. Not KTM, not Husky specific. Every manufacturer has their problems and they all have people like me. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it, it, it's very interesting. First of all, there's, there's, <laughs> there's the guys, there's the end users, much like me, that cannot leave a motorcycle alone. It, <laughs> if you saw my 790, you would laugh at all the different things that are on it because I quote unquote made it better for me. But Ultimately, I do know that because I did A, B, and C, that does have an effect on the bike, the way it handles. Uh, and then, you know, like I'm not running a stock headlight. And so I know about CAN bus systems, uh, which for those playing the home game, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's basically it's a communication line inside the motorcycle that, that basically interconnects everything. And based on those signals, if that signal gets tweaked and the motorcycle's not expecting it, here comes the error code. Or the light doesn't turn on, or the bike doesn't turn on. Essentially, it's a it's a pair of wires that are wound a certain way that reside in the wiring harness that communicate all of the ECUs. Mm-hmm. So, like on the twelve ninety Super Adventure, you've got you know a headlight ECU. You have nine ECUs on that bike. All nine of those ECUs are communicating through those two wires. So, um, if you have one ECU that says, "Hey, I don't want to talk to anybody," then you end up having a a failure on the dash and the customer, you know, experiences a, you know, a problem, so mm-hmm. to speak, you know, and that problem, but anyway, yes. So that's, okay. that's the key of us. Yeah. So, so for those of you that are listening to the show and thinking about modifying your electrical system, <laughs> beware, <laughs> especially on the newer bikes. 
Yeah, yeah, no, uh, and that's just it. That's a great point. Um, you know, if, if there's any advice I can give to anybody, make sure that you're working with 12 volts. You know, a lot of the, the sensors on these motorcycles operate off of 5 volts. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting there looking for a 12-volt source for an accessory and you're going to tap into the harness, you're likely going to create some problems that are going to cost you a lot of money. Yeah. So, yeah, just, uh, you know, if, if you have any questions re- with regard to electricity or electrical items on a motorcycle, please contact your dealer and, and um, you know, just get the, the right and wrong way to mm-hmm. do something. Yeah. So. Or don't. This will be the and This is this is my customer service supporting the dealership statement. Or if not, be ready to pay for it. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's it's the truth, you know, and, and, and working in a dealership on the service advisor side of it for so long, it was like, OK, I'm going to be as nice as possible to you. But I need you to understand that at some point with what this bike has going on, the bill is going to be your bill, not the dealership and much or not the dealerships and or the manufacturers. Because yeah. I can see that you have like power commanders um, when I when working at, at BMW, you know, I especially on the double R's, everybody on the street bikes was like, I'm going to put a power commander because I'm going to get this. Or I'm going to. I go, I don't know anybody that can ride a road in San Diego that will pin it, leave that corner and say, I wish it had a little more. <laughs> right. <laughs> so but yet diagnosing power commander issues was like two, three times a month. A misfire, yeah. uh, this or that, and 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 it always ended up being, you know, okay, well, it, it's fifty fifty, right? We'll unplug everything, and we're going to plug it in. And if the bike works perfect, then that's on you. If the bike doesn't work perfect, we'll chase it down, and then it's up to you if you want to plug it back in. Yeah, motorcycles are so good nowadays. I mean, aside from just the kind of creature features, the comfort, you know, just little things, you know, to kind of aid the rider and more. Um, in a better way, the bikes technology-wise and speed-wise and horsepower-wise don't need to be modified. I mean, you, you look at our 1290, our Super Duke engine, uh, and that's in both the Adventure and the uh, the Super Duke, and that's putting out 160 horsepower. I can't ride a bike to 160 horsepower, let alone an off-road motorcycle with 160 horsepower. So modifying them to go faster, you know, usually just ends up costing, you know, it usually affects reliability. Mm-hmm. And one of my pet peeves is is when I build a bike, I want it to be reliable. Um, so I'm going to look at every aspect of where a wire uh, say a harness or something is going to lay in relationship to anything that articulates around it. So I don't want anything bumping into it. I don't want anything pulling it and stretching on it. And, you know, so, um, yeah, I also don't want it to look like a rat's nest, you know, because trying to troubleshoot something like that mm-hmm. is, is impossible. There's, 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 you might as well cut it all out and start over. Yeah. So I, I built something, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's very, um, uh, methodical i guess for for me unfortunately in the dealership world that's not realistic because time for the dealership is money lost Mm -hmm. uh you know so for me i'll spend i'll spend hours looking at a bike going you know i don't like the way that wire is going let's put it on the other side of the frame you know just little details i'm I'm a little crazy like that i guess yeah but i mean so let's and let's talk about that so building bikes you know uh, I see that you're building all the bikes for the, the Freedom Team, you know, maintaining them, keeping them up, including I saw Robert's uh, 
uh, RFR. And yes. like, what's, what's the approach on that, on that bike or, or any of them really for you to build them? I mean, it, I'm assuming there's still a stock bike, but just everything's kind of been detailed. Yeah. So it, it is a stock bike, stock motor. Um, you know, motors, like I said, we, we don't need to lean on the motor at all. We might put a, a, a muffler on it just to give us a little bit more torque, maybe on the bottom, maybe give us a little uh, nicer sound. But, um, uh, you know, so motors are stock. Um, the bike, essentially, I, I go through. I touch every single nut and bolt on that bike. I lock tight them. I torque them to spec. Um, you know, on a production-based bike, this is just reality is – there's not a lot of grease in the steering head bearings, not a lot of grease in the swing arm. They, they, they like, you know, it's very light coating. So I'll go back through all those aspects and, and, you know, essentially race prep, you know, and that's making sure everything is lubricated, torqued, loctited, everything that needs to be done. And then at that point, you know, we start to decide how we're going to set the bike up. Are we going to set it up for, you know, say a hundred pound rider? Are we going to set it up for a 200 pound rider? Um, you know, then we're looking at suspension. We're looking at springs. A lot of times we'll start, we'll leave the bike stock and then just give it, uh, to the customer to ride, to get a base idea. And then we'll come back and maybe add a spring to it or something like that. So suspension, uh, is taken into consideration ergonomics, uh, foot pegs, you know, the width of the foot peg is huge because it gives you more leverage and the ability to be able to, uh, control the bike, uh, handlebars and height of handlebars. When you're standing up, you know, are you in a comfortable position to where you could stand and still control the bike? So I'm, I'm looking at ergonomics. Um, and then we look at navigation tower. All right. Does, uh, what makes sense? I, I built, you know, and, and I've got five bikes that I've built. Unfortunately, they're all different bikes, but they were all at varying stages throughout their rally career. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had to work with what I had, but going forward, the bikes will be uh, kind of cookie cutter. You know, uh, I love the RMS products, you know, Matthew Glade, you know, an RMS. That Sonora Tower is, is probably one of the best towers I've ever worked with. Mind you, back in 2011, Luis and I would have to make um, a navigation tower out of aluminum and fiberglass. And, uh, you know, for our 450 XCW six days bikes that I built for the 2013, uh, uh, um, for my Colombian riders who finished in 2013, mm-hmm. then Luis's bike, we'd have to build a fairing for the 150 as well, too. So, um, so the nav tower is very clean, very simple. It gives you lots of, um, room to apply stuff, but, you know, so, so navigation, um, you know, how far out or up does the tower come up? All these little things factor into, you know, uh, each individual rider's bike. And what would, I mean, that's very true. I'm, we kind of talked about it or brought up earlier about, you know, even just the gear, right. We're making sure you're in the right gear, but ergonomic wise, you're going to be riding these bikes for a very long time. In, Correct. And, and day one and two, no big deal. But what you guys are working on is like day 10 stuff, you know, when you're tired, clapped out and you're just not, you know, feeling it. But that's all these little things that add up to it. Yes. So yeah. There's something very specific that I, uh, that I was thinking right now that you mentioned it. You mentioned pegs. So there's a lot of stuff out there as far as pegs go, lowering, raising and, and moving and peg width and stuff like that. What are your thoughts on that kind of stuff? I mean, and, 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 and a peg is, is it really rider preference? Are lower pegs better? Are they better if they're set back a little bit or what do you? Um, 
so yeah, no, I mean, it, it is, uh, again, back to ergonomics and the, and the rider itself. You know, for me, I'm 6'4", and so for me to transition from a seated position to a standing position is, is very hard on my knees. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, um, I'm not necessarily concerned with going lower on the peg, although there are some options out there. But, um, you know, the, the platform at which I can move my boot around, you know, the, the, the width, I want, it to, I want it to be more like a long john instead of just this little nub, you know, sticking out from the frame. But seat height at that point, I mean, so I, I, there's so many, like you said, there's so many different style of pegs and stuff. So you can lower them down to where it gives you um, a little bit more toe room to get underneath the shiv lever. So lower them down and back, or you can lower them up and forward for maybe a little shorter foot. Um, you can, uh, you can raise them obviously if, uh, um, you know, maybe that helps you stand better off the seat. If you've got short legs, I, it just, it is, it is all personal preference, but you know, those are the little details that make a rider better, uh, make a rider more comfortable, make a rider do things that, you know, don't take any thought, mm-hmm. you know, it's already muscle memory, yeah. you know, and setting up the bikes that way. Um, you know, so for, for the foot pegs and stuff like that, wider, um, you know, longer. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like the rally pegs, you know, for the for the uh, KTM, the factory rally pegs on the RFR are phenomenal. Unfortunately, they just don't fit the new frame styles, um, which may change for 23. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've, yeah. But ultimately, you know, there's there's I mean, there's Black Dog, there's Bulletproof, there's there's all kinds of manufacturers out there that make some really great pegs mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's more just you know finding the, the style you like and and what's comfortable to you and you know what uh ultimately you plan to do with the bike yeah you know wide rally pegs won't go well through trees uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> or or maybe not the tree itself but that stump that you thought you made it <laughs> exactly yeah so. And, and it, which is interesting. So that's for something for me, like I, I recently, um, you know, the, again, I have the 790. I've done all the stuff, you know, I did with Raid Garage, narrowed it up, put small, basically smaller tanks on it, which made the bike almost five inches narrower down at the bottom. Uh, I lost a half a gallon of capacity from the top of the tank. So the lower the center of gravity is a little bit lower, but I still have the lowered pegs on it that I got from Raid Garage. And in riding a stock bike, which is interesting, and I think you've seen this a lot, is you go so far down the rabbit hole of modifying a bike that you don't realize that the stock bike does these things better, but you've just taken that away from it. And you don't understand. It's hard to understand the changes if they were actually yeah. better. Yeah. Um, I learned this a long time ago, especially when it came to performance modifications. I, I had a, a, I had a short... Uh, road racing career, um, you know, out of Willow Springs and, and racing some 24-hour endurance races and racing against uh, people like Chuck Graves and Carlin Dunn and, and stuff. But uh, but any modification you make to a motorcycle, you should only do one modification at a time um, and go ride it. And again, because you might find that once you put, say, you change your handlebars or to a different height or, or maybe a different sweep, 
uh, or you, you know, like you say, change your foot pick and stuff, it may not be comfortable and it may actually make your riding worse than it actually makes better. It may look cool, but it's not functional at that point. So we try and keep it simple, you know, when we're building bikes, you know, we try not to go overboard, um, you know, like wheel sets. You know, I, I know that the stock wheel set will not hold up in an off-road desert race. Um, go out and ride, uh, you know, Dumont or Death Valley or something like that, and uh, you'll, you'll talk to a rim in 10 miles. It's, mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, getting something like Woody's Wheel Works, you know, getting some A60 rims and some billet hubs, heavy-duty spokes and stuff is definitely, you know, uh, what I focus on. Mm-hmm. Strength and reliability is what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I mean that that makes all the sense in the world. I mean, you're you're gearing up bikes that are that are going to head off into the great beyond, and even if it's it's just one less thing to work on, right? If you know that that is not a failure point, like a wheel, a wheel is something that I think that I'm, I don't care how strong and you you got this dialed setup, it's just eventually you're going to have a wheel issue. But if you if you didn't build it, you guarantee you have a wheel issue more frequently yes yeah so even though the bikes look like they're stock or their production there's a lot of obviously you know things that we do to them to make them better mm-hmm. yeah i mean and that's it seems like you guys are always developing stuff i mean especially now going to the new style frame leaving leaving the ladder frame for the rally bikes and then going to more of the mx style or the wraparound so i don't know the official name for that but yeah, so you've got the trellis style frame, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, essentially the based off of the 690 platform. Mm-hmm. You know, this is when they were trying to, you know, reduce the overall size of the bikes. You know, so back in 2011, the uh, the factory riders, you know, had to run, you know, 450, whereas everybody else who wasn't a factory rider, and I think it was like 30, 30 factory riders had to run the 450, and everybody else could run up to like 530 or, or 690 that year. And then after that year, everybody went to the 450. Mm-hmm. But uh, just basically, it, it gave it opened the door, and like you said, you know, through um, through development and stuff like that, things changes. But what what that did back then was it opened the door for all the manufacturers to come in, and KTM wasn't just the dominating factor. Now I love KTM, but I love competition mm-hmm. most of them. So you know, and then just watching KTM through the years, you know, with the trellis frame, and then eventually going back to the off road frame. As a mechanic, I started looking at it going, wow, that made it easier to get you there. And, oh, yeah, look at that. And It's so cool working for a manufacturer that is so ahead of the game and the curve, you know, with regards to, you know, what the next new uh, innovation is going to be. It's it's, um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I can I can only I can only imagine a a friend of mine recently just uh, signed in or signed up or is now working with KTM as well. And I met a lot of people that are that have worked with the company as well. But uh, same thing. I mean, very excited about, you know, what the company does. And, you know, I just go back to this like, uh, you know, 15 years dominance. And and then that ended with Honda. And now we're back. And so uh, I'm I love seeing that, you know, that obviously the company embraces the competition and, and wants to do better and is constantly testing, um, to make these bikes better. Do you, do you do, do you participate in some of the rally testing? Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, Not you yet. know, K- yeah, KTM is a rather large company. I, you know, we've had hopes to, you know, maybe turn freedom rally racing into the B team for KTM, you know, being for up and coming riders, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but, 
uh, ultimately that's a goal. And, and, you know, I think proof is in the pudding, you know, you just have to, we have to build it. We have to show them and we, we have to, to be all in. And, uh, that's, that's what we're working on this year. So for 23, when we open the doors for our fly and ride services, um, everybody knows what to expect from us. Yeah. Well, and, and so, yeah, you know, let's go down that rabbit hole because I think that that's very important. And if you guys are looking at doing like a, a B team, um, I think that the future here rally rally wise, right? More events coming on board, especially like the Kota rally where now, uh, I guess you guys are going to be up there, uh, doing support in a couple of weeks and how that grows. Would that be something you think, you know, a, a stateside rally team, you know, if they, if they went that, that far? Well, no, for sure. I, I think uh, there's so many opportunities that we're looking at right now, and it's just uh, it's uh, getting the, the the base. So, I mean, when you when you look at it, one, yeah, we want to have a rally team that goes to the rally races. We want to be able to provide, you know, uh, a professional or a kid, you know, who has ambitions to go to the rally or be successful in racing. We want to give them that experience, that opportunity uh, through the team. But we also want to open our, our doors to, you know, somebody who is maybe wanting to get involved in rally racing or wants to learn about navigation. So we're starting to, you know, put together different classes or, or working with different people to, to put together programs to where we can get more people involved and, and, and more learning and then be able to provide a fly and ride service to where these guys who have now gone through maybe a rally school and they want to do their first rally they can simply rent a bike from us. We've got a full service for them. All they have to do is fly in and ride, bring their gear and, and, and ride the bike. You know, we take care of everything from that. And that was, you know, more based on what I saw, you know, how we performed at the Dakar. Dakar is obviously you're at the pinnacle. You're, it's a race. There's, there's no distraction. There's nothing. What I found I had more fun doing uh, here recently, like we were just up at the Yellowstone rally is we had, 40 people there. I think 13 bikes of those 40 were ours. And, and, you know, it was just the camaraderie, you know, everybody talking and sharing stories and having fun going out and riding road books for the day. And it, it was a, it was a, an event. It was a, a destination event, a go-to event where, you know, everybody had a great time riding, learned how to rally and, you know, didn't kill themselves trying to race. Nice. Type the, the racing side of things and the non-racing side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I think that's that's been the bivouac experience. And now I've you know I've been trying to promote that. It's like if even if you're not on a rally bike, and even if you haven't yet done a road book, at least try and get to one of the events and just check out a bivouac and just see what it's like walking around and and the the sights and sounds of it. You know. And oh my gosh! Yeah, it's very different. Yeah, you know, it's the, the the equipment that you see, the technology that you see, the innovation that you see, the smells, the sights, the sounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's. Um, the Dakar is, is God, if you could ever make it to the Dakar, I mean, that's, that's a bucket list for, I imagine everybody, mm-hmm. it was a bucket list for me. And I just had no idea, you know, that it would happen in my life. And, and I was so fortunate to be able to do seven. Yeah. Hopefully I'll get to do eight, you know, and continue on. But, yeah. um, you know, bringing that passion back to the States is what 
Mike Stanfield and I wanted to do, you know, back in, you know, 2012, 13, you know, Sonora Rally was on the radar. Actually, it was the Cortez Rally. We would go do the first one with Cortez Rally, and then it was the Sonora Rally. And then the Baja Rallies, you know, were coming up. And now Scotty down there, he's, he's you know, three rallies going this year. And and it's just, you know, there's interest. There's people. There's, there's a new fascination with a new genre. And so, you know, we want to be at the leading edge of it. So we're doing everything we can to, you know, provide the, the best quality service. Yeah. Well, and I mean, obviously, and the experience without say goes to back that up, you know, multiple Dakars, uh, multiple, I mean, you work in this every day, troubleshooting and, and, and getting bikes set up and dialed in. And then, I mean, we've seen, you know, for those that, that already follow you, um, have seen, you know, you're working in the, in the trailer and, and, and doing this stuff, getting these bikes set up and, and getting everything dialed in. I mean, that's, that's what you really need. <laughs> it, it's, yeah. it, it's bad enough that you're trying, you know, it's, it's funny. People have asked me how to, you know, they want to learn how to ride a motorcycle. I go, well, you should probably learn to ride a, a, a quad that has a clutch first before we get on two wheels. Cause then that way you're only learning one thing at a time. <laughs> Absolutely. I can, I can remember being four and a half years old out in, um, Oh God, where we were on Cal city or something like that. And my dad's teaching me how to ride on an SL 70. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, I'm six, four. So I've always been tall for my, my, you know, as a, as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so four and a half years old, uh, he goes, this is the clutch. This is the gas this is the shift lever. You know, he's like, pull this in, you let this out, you turn this and you know, you go. And sure enough, man, I, I did just that. And by the time I was in third gear, I was flying through the bushes and stuff like that, you know, having a blast and no dis just complete disregard for my safety came back around, went through a fire pit, launched in the air, crashed, bloodied my nose. And my mom goes, you'll never touch another motorcycle as long as I live. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, oh, so that was, the, that was the start of my career. By the time I was 12, I was riding a YZ465. Uh, by the time I was 15, uh, my dad and I would um, uh, ride our bikes. I was on a KZ1000 Police Special, a 78. He was on a Goldwing 1200 Aspencade. Mm-hmm. And we would ride from California, from L.A., Hollywood to um, Pittsburgh, Kansas. Nice. I was 15 years old. No motorcycle license. By the way, my dad was a motorcycle cop for LAPD for, you know, 18 years from my, my beginning. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was just uh, I've always been around motorcycles and, and, you know, growing up with them. And, you know, so nice. I love giving love giving back to, to everybody I can and sharing the knowledge and, you know, just the experiences and trying to make. Uh, it possible for everybody yeah well and and so speaking of that let's talk a little bit have you spotted or maybe identified anything that like maybe keeps people back from trying rally um it would probably be when i say it's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life (laughs) first of all (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. i mean it's it's not for the weak-minded um you know, it's it's definitely going to push yourself and your limits, your mental capacity, as well as your physical capacity. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, after my first Dakar, you know, I came back. I'm like, God, that was incredibly hard. But mm-hmm. then it was like, oh, my God, I, I'd never done anything like that. I pushed myself. I, I found I found new red lines for me, mm-hmm. you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, I, I was pushing myself above and beyond and I just felt so good. It, it, 
you know, it was something that I wanted to continue to do and, and strive and, and be the, one of the best at, mm-hmm. um, you know, everything I, I do within the motorcycle realm is a passion for me. It's, it's something I've done all my life. And so I, I put a hundred percent, 110% into it, blood, sweat, and tears. And, um, so back to your, your question, it's, it's like, um, if people understand that it's difficult to do and they understand that's going to be hard and just don't quit, you know, I, I, I keep trying. And, and, um, I think that's probably it. The long distance riding, the, the long liaisons, um, not knowing where you're at at any given moment, you know, out in the, when you're off piste and, and you're, you're, you're hunting a, a wake, uh, excuse me, a cap heading, you know, or a waypoint through cap heading. It's, like I said, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That was that was something that we talked about a couple episodes with, with Willem. Is I think a lot of people try and like if you look at if you look at a road book as a whole, it's very very confusing and very intimidating. Sure. But if you like anything else, you know, you just take it a note at a time, and then know that when you get there, it'll make sense. Then it's actually more manageable. And the best thing you can do is just understand the difference between, you know, if it's in French or if it's in English, you know, if it's in French, the, the A's and the G's and the TDSPPs. Like if you just know the basics, that's almost good enough because the rest yes. of it is only experience. Yep. Yep. No, it's, it's like anything. You just have to, to, you know, kind of use your mind and, and, and know that you're not lost. Uh, you know, understand the four points of, of north, south, east, east, and west, and obviously the the cap heading of zero to three sixty and stuff. If you got the basics, like you said, you know the the rest comes easy. The hard part is when you're trying to use all that while you're riding, and that's where the God, the, the I have the utmost respect for the the motorcycles, the the moto guys. You know, they're doing this all by themselves where, you know, if you're in a UTV or ATV and not to take anything away from, excuse me, not ATV, but UTV Mm -hmm. and cars, trucks, not to take anything away from their abilities and stuff like that, but they have a navigator. So they're not actually focused on keeping the bike upright or keeping the car upright. They're just focused on driving, Mm -hmm. you know, where they're being told what to do. But God, the bikes. Yeah, that's. um, and, And again, remember, I said mental. I mean, you're mentally trying not to crash and you're mentally trying to go the right direction. You know, and, um, you know, so it's, it's a lot of mental, so you got to be strong mentally. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a very good point. Like they're, it's one thing like desert racers, the guys that do the sprint races, you know, you, you see how big of a, there's a physical demand on them, but they know where they're going. There's a marked course, there's a predefined course. So they just need their body to, to do, to perform just like the motorcycle, right? It's a physical thing. And the mental side of it is, is yeah, they're processing terrain at a extremely high rate of speed. But when it comes to the, when it comes to rally, it's, it's like that combination. It's that take a really tough day at the office and then add in a crazy workout at the same, you know, that's more along the line. So that's where, like you were mentioning here, the ergonomics of the bike, the suspension of the bike. I mean, the, the it, it keeps coming up as a reoccurring theme it's like ergonomics are i think in a certain way easier to dial in right you try a seat you can sit on a couple bikes you can tweak the handlebars really easily but to do the suspension to take it off put it back on do the valving do the springs you know uh in the case of some of these bikes right where you're changing the offset on the triple clamps changing the triple clamp material and design so it flexes differently and things things that us 
may never really actually feel and notice the difference between one and the other. That's what makes a big difference at the end of the day. Uh, Definitely. You know, uh, my son uh, jumped on two different bikes, just for example, and, and one of them was set up for a 260 pound rider and one of them was set up for 180. And he went out and rode both bikes. He probably did 30 K on each bike. And when he came back, he goes the you know, the one with the, that was set up for 260, he goes, cause my, my son's like 140 pounds soaking wet. He goes, that thing just beat the crap out of me. You know, it, it just like constantly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just vibrating and, you know, I'm, I'm just getting, you know, all this arm pump and stuff from trying to hang on. Mm -hmm. And then he goes, the other bike, it was like, I was riding a, I was driving a Cadillacs kind of like, it was just so plush and, you know, it wasn't fighting me and the bike would turn. And so suspension makes a huge difference. The problem is, is like you said, is, is finding the right setup. And unfortunately, finding the right setup is very difficult unless you have your own personal suspension tech, mm -hmm. you know, because ultimately, you know, for the technician to do the suspension or build the suspension for you, he has to understand how you ride. So technically the technician should be out there with you watching you ride, watching his work perform, you know, um, live, mm -hmm. uh, that way he can say, you know, maybe, uh, it's blowing through the stroke too fast, or, you know, we need to add more spring or, or maybe it's, it's coming rebounding too fast. So we just couple clicks here. And so he can fine tune at that point. And once you get that dialed in, mm -hmm. then the only thing that changes over time is, is maintenance and, and fluid because fluid, eventually the viscosity of it's going to wear out and, you know, your damping is going to be different. So, it's just basic maintenance. But again, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that people don't understand when they, they send their forks off to be rebuilt is it's a base setting. It's a baseline for, you know, um, you know, what you're giving, what information you're giving, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and then that's, you know, then, then it becomes, you know, I, I've, I've seen it. I know more about off-road suspension on vehicles. Um, you know, I can tell the difference between rebound compression, that kind of thing and see, you know, I can look at a vehicle and do that, but it, it always kind of boggled my mind that there's a lot of suspension tuners out there um, in the vehicle, even on the vehicle side of it, where they will not leave the office, not leave the shop. They'll say, okay, this should be good. And then send it. Yes. And, but like you said, I mean, I'm, you know, I was actually just having a, a conversation with somebody uh, about the suspension on my 790 and, and starting to work on it. And I had uh, from the now defunct uh, conflict, I had uh, their setup on on the bike, right? WP Pro component rear shock with the uh, MX Tech uh, cartridge kit up front. So it's kind of a, a, a one-off setup, you know? And we're having this conversation and talking about that. And the first thing is, is I, well, I have to watch you ride. And I have to see this because your riding style, your everything you just said is, is, is exactly what he told me. Mm -hmm. and, and it makes such a big difference because you don't know how that person rides. I'm, I'm most definitely not aggressive in the whoops. I'm the last guy you're going to see charging a section. It's my least favorite. I will spend more time looking for a workaround than, and lose time than actually just hit them and, and hope for the best. Right. But then again, I've never, maybe that's just because I haven't ridden a bike that was actually suited, you know, where mm -hmm. I said, okay, you did the suspension and did all that. But that, that's okay. I like my wheels on the ground. So give me, give me a fast desert bike over a motocross bike any day. Yeah. I, you know, I, that's, that's my thing. And I mean, and I like, you know, the fire roads and, and the chop and the little stuff like that, you know, no big deal. But if I'm, you know, I will be the last person to 
voluntarily take a bike up Zoo Road in San Felipe. <laughs> right. And if I really, really had to, I would say, well, I'll do this from north heading south because I know that the whoops aren't as sharp. So right. <laughs> so that's my, you know, so I, it's very interesting to me, as, especially like sus- suspension always kind of hit home because I know more about how it affects a vehicle and how you can drive a car and 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 the results of it. Right. The driver works less and he notices that on the steering wheel, you know, almost right. immediately. So. Yo, absolutely. When the suspension, when you look at the trophy truck going over those, you know, three foot, four foot, five foot whoop sections and the truck isn't moving, but the suspension underneath it is moving. The, the ride, the driver isn't getting as beat up. You can see him. He's kind of just he, he's not. Um, God, what I want to say, you know, kind of whiplashing back and forth inside the, the cab. He's you know, he's pretty stable. So it uh and you can see the way that the suspension works well it's the same on bikes um it just it takes a lot more money to um to get it to do that um but bring so back to um you know working on suspension there are manufacturers out there and and i'm not to to pimp wp but we sell obviously the pro component uh rear shock and stuff but then we also sell drop-in cartridges now which are closed cartridge Mm drop-ins you know so if you had an air fork and you wanted to, to, you know, mess with valving now and, you know, you could drop in a set of closed cartridge, you know, uh, cartridges inside that air fork. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity out there. And those things are so good. We actually set up our 22 uh, XCF, um, our, excuse me, our 22500 XCFW mm-hmm. uh, with pro component suspension and night and day difference. Um, we've, we've got some fast kids that rode stock and rode this and they were like just unbelievable they were like they were comparing it to the cone valve setups on the rally bike even though they like the cone valve setups on the rally bike better the rfr they they like the pro component stuff so um it's not necessary always to send your stuff out you know but there are some other options and stuff like that that are probably better and at that point it's just springs you know um figuring out what your weight is and what spring rate to put in it yeah now, and, and that's so two questions on that one. Um, first, to tackle the last, the springs. Do you do you feel like most of the time, like these spring charts overestimate and, and go a little stiffer than needed or or softer? No, they're, they're usually a little softer, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. We've we've gone two rates and, and we've could have gone three rates on some of our bikes. I mean, and, and it's not that the you know, we've got heavy set riders. It's it's that these kids are going so fast. Mm-hmm. um that they, they need more spring so they don't blow through the suspension travel yeah so fluid fluid and valving only does so much correct yeah and, and it all works in conjunction with the spring so you could have too much spring which overpowers the valving mm-hmm. um there's just there's so much knowledge and 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 when it comes to you know building a bike you know you you have so many different components of building that bike like i said you got the ergonomics you got the suspension You've got the engine or the reliability. Um, you, you've got uh, electrical. You know, all right. Now you've got all this navigation equipment. Is your charging system going to uh, cope? You know, can it keep up with the demand? You've got extra lighting because now you're navigating out in the middle of you know the the, the dunes at night, one o'clock in the morning, trying to get back to the bivouac. Do you have adequate lighting and and what's your charging system going to do at that point? Mm-hmm. Fuel. Do you have enough fuel? to get to the next gas station, you know, the requirement for, um, for the ASO for the Dakar is you have to be able to go 160 miles on a tank of fuel. Mm-hmm. That's the minimum requirement. 
So that's why the rally bikes have eight gallons of fuel on them is so that they, you know, if do get lost out in the middle of nowhere, they can make it there. So when you're building a rally bike, there's so many components to that rally bike you have to take in consideration and then you have to make it all work together. Yeah. So you just can't like we talked about in the, to your point in the beginning, you can't just throw a bunch of things at it, expect it to work, you know, um, ultimately that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So there's a lot of thought and, and, you know, method to my madness, you know, and probably most bike builders, you know, anybody who builds something professionally or works on something professionally, the way I look at this is, is I've got a life in my hands on one, on a bike that I built, you know, I, that that's, in, that's huge to me, you know, and, and if you don't have that, that mentality, then maybe you just don't care. And, and I'm not that, you know, I, I have to care because I want that guy coming home. I want that bike coming home. But most importantly, like I said, I want that guy coming home. Yeah. Well, and that, and, and that's very interesting because it's there's to that point, the aspects of it. Right. So one mechanical, you know, is is making sure that the bike is is 100 percent mechanical. So it's easy to ride. So you've done everything you can to prevent the rider. A rider riding over their head will always be a liability. I mean, that's just, right. you know, you, you can't account for that. But a rider riding normally, making sure that the bike is predictable, that it does exactly what they're asking for, you know, within reason uh, is huge. That's one point. And then the other one, you know, especially in the Dakar, a mechanical failure. If you have a mechanical failure out in the middle of nowhere, it's going to be a while and you got to be out there. And granted, they have, you know, the, the communications, they have a lot of stuff in place so you don't spend as much time out there. But that could just as easily transfer over to a practice and training where you're out training on this bike and it has a mechanical and now you're stuck out there for a very long time. So there's a lot of aspects to making sure the bike is obviously dialed in. Yeah. And, and so when I set up a bike like that and, and we're still in the midst of setting up our bikes, but, um, having tools on the bike, you know, so I try and, and basically outfit the bike with, in every little crack and crevice, it's crazy. I'll try and, you know, put a toolkit. So, you know, you got the Motion Pro toolkit, that little uh, looks like kind of a taco, you know, and it's just this little toolkit that you piece together. That's probably one of the best toolkits out there. Mm-hmm. That coupled with a um, uh, a Leatherman or something, a multi-use tool, mm-hmm. those two tools, you know, will be able to work on just about every aspect of the bike. The other thing is zip ties, you know, and electrical tape and extra fuses, extra bolts and, you know, just little things that you can um, essentially MacGyver your bike back together. You know, so if you had little two part uh, JB Weld, JB Quick or something like that and you punched a hole in your case and you had an oil leak, you know, you'd be able to lay the bike on its side and fix it and be able to get out, you know, uh, back to us something to remember in the Dakar is the, the riders have to do all of this by themselves unless they have the support of a T what is it, T4 T5 the assistance trucks mm-hmm. in the back unless they're carrying parts for them there um, you know and you know so as a rider you also have to be mechanically competent and understand you know when you hear something that doesn't sound right and you have to baby your bike you know, so for you're hearing an abnormal motor noise or something and, you know, you've got 100K to go, you know, that's when you start backing off the throttle, you start babying it, you know, you start doing everything you can to make it. Mm-hmm. If you can get back to the bivouac, I can fix your bike and get you back out on stage the next day. Mm-hmm. 
But if you don't get out of the stage, then obviously your day's over. Yeah. And, you know, so we, we try and, and what I'd like to do is, you know, uh, eventually as, as we get this rolling and stuff is, is put together little classes on, on just little tips and tricks on how to fix bikes, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, giving people ideas, you know, just so that 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 uh, adventure doesn't end for them, mm-hmm. you know, due to a mechanical. But like I said in the beginning, setting up the bike correctly you know, and, and going through it is, um, is paramount, you know, to, to that. Yeah. It's, it's the first and foremost, you know, if you get that done, because then that will help, it it betters your chances that that Leatherman and that motion pro toolkit will get the job done. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Cause if it's anything, you know, yeah, you, you start running into it. So the other, the other quick question I had for you, uh, about was particularly about the suspension, uh, a cone valve setup versus the closed cartridge setup. Um, I, you know, to me, I, I didn't know necessarily like a closed closed cartridge setup. I'm thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to get the best from a bike, I, I just, you know, it's cone valves. Obviously, you just do cone valves. But is, what's the bigger difference with the cone valve versus the closed cartridge? It's all fluid dynamics, mm-hmm. um, flow dynamics, uh, how you can dampen, um, you know, the, the flow of oil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so cone valves have a lot more adjustability they're a lot more refined they're not more well polished they're obviously a different uh valving setup mm-hmm. um they have uh some adjustability without having to replace parts whereas you know when you're dealing with uh standard conventional you know uh, open chamber closed chamber forks you've got valving stacks you deal with so there's some subtle differences there but more it's just um refinements it's it's like taking a i don't know a shock off your your Mazda and, and, you know, comparing it against a, uh, an F1 car might be extreme, but mm-hmm. to that point, it's just, you know, why does that work so much better? Well, they're traveling at such higher speeds. They need to be able to control fluid. They need to be able to control heat in the fluid. They need to be able to control air or emulsion air, you know, in the fluid. So, you know, all these little things factor, and that's probably the main differences without going into mm-hmm. indivi- intricate detail between the two. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there, so the ability to, I guess this, uh, for some people, it'll make more sense. You don't need to go as far as going cone valves. You could just go to the next step up and, and just get that dialed in, work with your suspension guy to make sure, you know, that it's sprung for your weight and at least some kind of baseline. You know what? In most situations, uh, these bikes are, are, are far better than anybody, including myself, can ride. So sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, uh, increasing the, uh, the, the rate of the spring for your size, the valving will be perfect for your riding style. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of people get these brand new bikes and they want to trick them out. They want, excuse me, they want to outfit them. They want to do all this stuff to them. And, and like you were saying earlier, sometimes when you do all that stuff, you don't know if you've actually hurt the performance of the motorcycle. Mm-hmm. So when you get a brand new bike, go out and ride it. Pay attention to the way the suspension is is working. Pay attention to when the bike bottoms out. Um, you know uh, what you have on your back. Do you have? Are you carrying a big backpack? Do you have a lot of weight? You know how much extra pounds do you have? And you know then with that information, you can go back to your suspension guy. Okay, hey, I'm traveling at 30 miles an hour, and I hit this G out, and it and it just bottoms out. You know, you'll be able to give a more specific information. Um, to the problems or the the conditions you're experiencing for him to be able to help you out when it comes to tuning the suspension for you. Yeah. And don't give him the DMV weight. 
<laughs> That's right. It's okay. No, I, I, uh, I'm sorry. You know, you, 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 yeah, this is one of those things where you're going to have to swallow your pride and hop on the scale. Yeah. You know, and then throw all your gear on and realize it's another, you know, 30 pounds that you're adding to your body. And now you weigh, you know, 280, you know, <laughs> like me, I put all my gear on and I'm, I'm 250. By the time I get my gear on, I feel like, you know, I'm close to 300, but yeah. It's just, um, it is what it is. You know, you need your gear, you need your protection. And, uh, you know, so you set up your bike for the way you're going to ride it. Yeah. Well, and that's, and, and that's very true. I think a lot of people, I mean, I have yet to, and this is horrible cause I'm, I'm, I'm learning all these things right now on this episode. I'm thinking like, okay, well, so I basically screwed my 790 up by putting all of these things on it. So now it's like, okay, well now I need to really go back to basics on that bike um, but then the other one, like you're talking about is, is that the gear, I've never actually weighed myself in gear. I only estimate, you know, how much it is, but boots are heavy. That backpack is heavy and it adds up in a hurry. And Absolutely. so, and it, it will, it, it will make a very big difference. So now I'm like, all right, well, time to get, you know, get on the scale, figure out how much the bike weighs, figure out how much I weigh, you know, get those, all of those numbers that I can to a suspension, to the suspension guy that I'm thinking of using and, and then go from there. You know. you know, it's it's just to kind of give you an idea. So I, I had a, a 2018 1290 Super Adventure R, mm-hmm. and I had it outfitted with TourTech bags, you know, metal bags all the way around, top and bottom, top sides. And I, I um, it was the TourTech, excuse me, not the TourTech Rally, it was the uh, KTM Adventure Rally, and we were in um, Breckenridge. Mm-hmm. Well, I got a call. So I, me and my buddy, he rode his 990 out there. And, and so we decided, well, we're going to camp out along the way and stuff. So I figured, well, I'm going to load this thing down. I, I want every, I, I'm going camping, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be prepared. And I was way too prepared. So I, I've got all this stuff on the bike. I can feel the bike is heavy. And, and then as we started traversing some of the back country, I realized I was way too heavy it first started when I was on the highway, when I had so much weight on the, the bike in the back, um, the bike started to handle, um, abnormally. And so at higher speeds, 70, you know, 80 miles an hour, the bike would start to wallow and, and move back and forth. And, and I just, I, I knew I had too much weight on the back. I couldn't crank the preload up enough. So ideally what I would have needed to do if I was going to, uh, ride that way all over, say I was going to do around the world, I would need to increase the the spring mm-hmm. on my, um, on my bike. But then when I got off road and stuff, the, every time that bike slammed and hit the ground, every time that bike slammed and hit the ground, I cringed and oh. I just, I thought, you know what, this is, you know, this is just destroying my bike because I'm overweighted. So ultimately when we got to Breckenridge, I got a phone call that I needed to be up in Spokane, Washington. Mm-hmm. So I look at my buddy, I go, Hey, do you want to ride? And he's like, yeah, let's do it. So from Kansas city, say Kansas city, Missouri to Breckenridge, Spokane. And then we did Yellowstone Glacier National Park. We did, you know, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, all over the place. We did 5,300 miles on that trip, nice. but I had to offload a bunch of my gear before we took off on that trip. You know, we put it into a box. We went to the UPS station and we sent it home because it was like, there's no way we need this stuff. So yeah, that, pack, pack light, pack, pack, don't, don't overpack. Don't overdo it. That, you know, it's funny. And I was thinking the same thing. I'm going, I would have found the first FedEx or UPS station to get a, <laughs> get a box and send it back, you know? And, and I, you know, I actually, I did an episode on it a long time ago about talking about that, that like you have to be very methodical. So 
I use a lot of hiking gear or backpacking gear. Yes. The tent, the sleeping bag, the sleeping pad, everything is based around that. It's like if I was going to physically carry it on my back. And, but that was one of the reasons like, look at every single piece of equipment, just like every tool, like the toolkit that you mentioned earlier. It's like everything has a purpose. You can do 90% of what you want to do with this. Yes. Out in the field. And, and, you know, and then the other side of it is be realistic. I did that in setting up a toolkit for my 850. I sat down and said, okay, what can I actually do in the middle of nowhere? I don't, I don't need the tools to take the motor out of it because I can't take the motor out of it. I'm in the middle of nowhere. So I think that, you know, with camping, as was like, you know, leave the coffee maker at home. You'll be okay. You know, just <laughs> before you go figure out an acceptable replacement for for that. And I mean, and that, you know, joking around, but there's a lot of little things like that. Like, do you really need that chair or maybe go to the local place that sells camping equipment and find a chair that, you know what, this will do. But it fits. Back, back, backpacking and and adventure motorcycling are i mean they're, they're they go hand in hand you know so i mean it's the equipment that obviously backpackers use you know and they need it light they need it small they need it compact you know obviously to be able to survive out there so yeah use that uh, that method that mentality of of you know when you're looking for equipment on your for your adventure bike mm-hmm. go with the backpacking route absolutely yeah yeah, because I promise when you hit that road and that bike is 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 too heavy, you're not going to enjoy that off road. Not at all. Not <laughs> at all. Especially when you get off road and you you dump it, yeah. you know, and now it's laying on its side, <laughs> even though the bags are holding it off the ground a little bit for you to get under it. Yeah. Uh, picking up a 500 pound bike after you've been riding all day, you know, no matter how strong you are, uh, it, it's yeah, it's no fun. Yeah, I've I've had that coming down. Uh, I went riding with a, a friend of mine a long time ago. We did uh, the road, the backside road coming off of Mike Sky Ranch. And there's a lot of turns with ruts in them. And he was he had never been up there, so he didn't know really how to pack for it. So he he packed on the heavier side. And I don't I lost count of how many times he went down uh, coming down it, you know, and just it, it wasn't like big falls. It was just tip overs. It was just, you know, the line, the the front wheel washed out on him and, and the bikes on the ground and. Yeah, like the first time, the second time, I was like, you know, with all the bags on it, and then after that, I was like, okay, we need to take the bags off of it before we even try and move this thing. (laughs) Right. But you know, then I I think like, okay, well, if you would have traveled light, would you have dropped it that many times? And that's the (laughs) yeah. Well, I mean, and that's that's a valid question too, because obviously, you know, when you've got your bike weighted down, it affects your ability to balance the bike, Mm -hmm. and so you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a A lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. Nice. So last question. So what's, uh, what's next for you guys? Are you guys ready for, uh, for the Kota rally? Is that. So, uh, yeah, we've got some new, uh, new changes, uh, uh, a new truck, uh, that's going to be, uh, presented. Um, we'll be heading up there, um, I think on the ninth, I'm not sure when Robert's heading up. Um, I'm going to try and be up there on the ninth and 10th. Uh, and then I've got to head off to the, uh, because the Coda rally is a Mali moto event. Mm-hmm. There's not really a lot of support I can do. I can help out before the race and I can help out after the race, but during the race, everybody's on their own. Mm-hmm. So I've got to go up to Tamarack, um, to KTM, to the KTM adventure rally nice. that week. So I'll, I'll be up there. Um, you know, working, uh, that event. And that's going to be fun for me. Uh, last, uh, the last event I did, 
um, like I said, we were up in Breckenridge. Mm-hmm. We actually had our first inaugural overnight camp out. So Chris Fillmore and I, uh, Chris Fillmore, uh, professional road racer and stuff, we ended up doing lead sweep and taking I think it was about 12 guys out. And um, I think in the two days that we were out, we did 600 plus miles up in, you know, around Crested Butte, Taylor Park, you know, all up in that area. Um, and then we camped out up in Taylor Park. So we're going to plan on doing an event like that again this year. So I'm really excited nice. for that. Oh, that's going to be rad. Yeah, that's uh, definitely on the uh, on the bucket list to get up there. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I, they're changing the format up this year, so it's it's going to be uh, all new. Mm-hmm. And um, I think uh, instead of one night camp out, we're actually going out for two nights. I think uh, so. I think we leave on Thursday or something like that, and come back on Saturday. Nice. So, and then in between that, you know, we're just you know, you'll we'll leave camp, you know, obviously, and and just go out and and ride. Uh, the the terrain so i think uh i think i'm gonna pick an 890 ah there you go (laughs) near and dear i still i have the 790 i love that bike i mean it's it uh you know just a little bigger motor yeah maybe eventually i i have you know i have been honestly thinking of the idea i have a 501 but i've been thinking about um ditching that to go to a, a 690 or 701 and yeah. and build it up, you know, get the kit, get the rally kit and all that stuff, something a little bit more formal. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I think it, at that point it might get too close to the 790 as far as bikes go. Or you just, you know, maybe uh, you know, with the cost of what you're going to do there, tack on another 10, 15 grand and buy a factory rally bike. If you could, then, <laughs> if you could help me make that happen, I would love to. I, I, I will. I will take out a second on the house to have that in the garage. Right. Well, 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 let's just start next time you're in the neighborhood. You know, you, you come out and ride the, the one we've got here. If you haven't ridden yeah. one, I, I, I will definitely, you know, turn it yeah. over to you. Yeah. I've, you know, it's, it's the question I always ask people, right. That, you know, it's like the, the riding differences of it. And I kind of see it with the adventure bike side of it. And I learned it a long time when my first dirt bike was a YZ 250. Uh, but it was their, their four stroke motocross bike that was all ball out. And mm-hmm. that thing was just so harsh to me. And then I got on a, I, my next bike was a KTM, the LC4. It was a six, I think it was the 620. Okay. Yeah. Correctly. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, this bike is so much easier to ride, but it's twice the size. Mm-hmm. So that's my comparison to it is like, okay, well, you know, yeah, it's a heavier bike, but in the terrain, you don't get bounced around as much. It's, it's, it's more compliant. Uh, obviously that bike wasn't tuned. I just basically threw a pipe and a desert tank on it and, and that was it. But, um, uh, and, and not to take anything away from any other manufacturer mm-hmm. out there. I, I love motorcycles and I don't care what you ride, you know, two mm-hmm. wheels, you, you can be on a Harley. I, it does, doesn't matter to me. I, I love it all. Yeah. My, my, uh, I guess my point to, to the KTMs is, is like, to your point, mm-hmm. Uh, yes, they're big and heavy, but the way they design them, the way they design the ergonomics makes them feel light and nimble. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we were up at the tour tech rally, um, in Washington, I think in 18 and Russell Bobbitt was up there with his wife. Now, Russell Bobbitt, uh, you know, champion off-road racer. I mean, extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. He's there with his wife and he's on a 1090 adventure. I'm on a 1290 Super Venture. Um, our 
district sales managers on a 1290 super venture and then our events coordinators on a 1090 and he goes hey why don't we go out and go ride so we're thinking yeah we're riding with this this professional level rider he's got his wife on the back how bad could it be mm-hmm. right no problem so we're on some um you know just some fire roads or whatever and you're jamming up through the into the mountains in, in washington up by plane and and all of a sudden He's up front, and he's maybe 10 bike lakes up front, and he takes a 90 degrees and goes straight up a hill. And we're not talking straight up a hill. We're talking straight up a mountain, you know, zigzagging back and forth between the trees on this Black Diamond mountain bike trail. Naturally, because we don't want to be wimps, you know, we all follow in suit. And next thing you know, we're traversing what I should have been on a 450. I'm now traversing on a 1290. You know, and um, this lasted for 26 miles, 26 miles of of going down. I mean, we were crossing streams on the sides of mountains. There were points at at, at, had we lost the bike, had I fallen over and the bike had gone down the side of the mountain, the only way you would have gotten that bike out is a helicopter and lifted, airlifted out. That was it. There's there's no riding it out. There's nothing. (laughs) And we've got these. And these are our demo bikes too. So we're, we're there for the tour tech rally to do demos. So we've got all the demo bikes out and we're just like, you know, having a blast at one point. I, I remember to this day, the, the, the rock, but there was a rock sticking out of the side of the, the, the mountain on, on the, the rider's right. And on the rider's left, you know, it's just, it's straight down. And there's probably 18 inches, you know, if that of trail mm-hmm. uh, width and, I saw the rock sticking out. It's kind of hidden by a, a fern. And I tipped the bike to the left and then back to the right. <clears throat> well, the district sales manager, uh, Chuck, he, uh, he wasn't so fortunate. He did not see the rock hidden behind the fern and caught it with his foot peg and ripped his foot peg off his frame. Oh. So now he had to ride the entire Black Diamond Trail with one peg. So, <laughs> ultimately, you know, we were cussing and screaming and, and you know, uh, whatever. I mean, we yeah. were, by the time we were done, we we're like, oh my God, that was absolutely amazing. And I said, you know, and, and watching Russell Bobbitt with his wife, you know, and this is why we're thinking, you know, he's got his wife on the back. We're not going to do anything crazy. Yeah. But watching his wife ride, she was like a, a jockey, like riding like a, a horse jockey, you know, and she just, she's off her, off the seat. And she's just squatting there on the on the passenger pegs, and she's literally kind of just leaning with him as he's leaning the bike and moving the bike as they're both standing. You know, it's like in unison, and I mean, just absolutely unreal. I, I, I swear, I'll, I'll never as much and as capable as that twelve ninety was. I will never do that on a twelve ninety again. <laughs> I, I had a blast doing it, and I, I challenged myself, and I pushed myself, and and obviously it wasn't my bike, and it was like, okay, no big deal. But at the same time, the consequences could have been yeah. catastrophic, <laughs> you know. But those are the stories, you know. We all try and and, and live for and 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 find, and you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to have had that. But yeah, going forward, if I had, uh, I would not do that yeah, again you, on my personal you, bike. Yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't sign up for it. Did, <laughs> you wouldn't volunteer no, for it. No. No, I, I'd probably preface the, uh, you know. Um, Bob it as going, Hey, are, are you going to do any black diamond stuff? But anyway, uh, you know, it's funny. I, this is why I have trust issues when we go, like I've, I've talked about this on previous episodes, but it's very, very true. Know the person you're asking, is this acceptable? 
Like that's a great, great point. Because um, man, I mean, that's the like you know I know better. Like if I like with my buddy Travis who's now um, working with uh, with KTM and with you guys, like I've seen his YouTube videos, so I know what he does on the 790 and what mm-hmm. he's capable of. And I and I look up to him because he's always practicing. He's always he's a very like uh, he's very adamant about the skill set and working. Very easygoing guy and everything. But but I know better. I know better than to ask, like to like, yeah, I'll go with you without asking, Hey, where are you guys headed? What's the, you know, because I know the stuff that he is capable of. And to him, it's easy. It's just not my skill set. Right. And, yeah. And that's, that's, that's me. You know, I, I, I'm getting to the point where, you know, I, I, I've always, um, built bikes for people. I, you know, I love to ride and stuff like that, you know, and, and there are things that, uh, have happened in our lives that had curtailed my riding. Mm-hmm. But um, working on bikes and building a bike for somebody who's capable of riding a bike I build for them gives me more pleasure in some cases than actually physically going out and riding the bike. So as, as strange as that may sound. But with that said, every time I go out and ride with my friends, my friends are all way faster or they do this for a living. or, or And I, I find myself riding above my head and I find myself getting hurt more than I Mm-hmm. can afford to yeah. at this point so yeah it's it's um you know make sure i i try and uh you know if i go out and ride i want to casually ride i i don't want to it's not a race for me anymore and 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 maybe uh you know i'm hanging out with the wrong people but yeah. certainly uh, i want to slow down a little bit but yeah that's that's me i enjoy you know building the bikes for people to ride to that potential yeah and I, you know i'm with you i i enjoyed that that's why the the ktm the 790 has turned into the project that it has because i i enjoy building the bike but i you know i think i'm with you is like i enjoy the casual rides and my personal challenge and what i do is it's like i'm the slowest rider in the group and when i pull up everybody's taking a break and i'm not stopping my my like mentality is is that i want to push myself distance wise i want to be able to ride further without taking breaks without doing this stuff and just make the bike work for me. And so I can do that and I can accomplish that because to me, that's a bigger achievement. You know, anybody can ride fast for five minutes. Some guys, 10 minutes, some guys like Colton Udall will do 600 miles at a pace that no, that's unbelievable. Right. But that's just them. And that's how they ride and how they got used to it. I I see more value and more fun and being able to just go out on a really long ride and, and be tired at the end of the day, but know that, you know, you accomplished this many miles in a day, which is crazy. Yes. Yeah. So, I hear you on that one. Sweet. Well, looks like we're going to have to catch up after the, uh, after the Kota rally and see how that went. And then, uh, and then here's some of the adventures from the, uh, KTM adventure rally. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I'd love to love to come back if you'll have me. Yeah. I mean, there's, I've got just car stories for days. If you want to learn about <laughs> what to do and what not to do on a, uh, 150 CC two stroke that's racing in the Dakar. Uh, Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. I've been like, okay, so hey, we're going to, this is longer conversation. So that was another bike. I was like, what about, because I see what Travis does on the two strokes. And I, I, to me, a two stroke is no engine braking. So, which means it forces you to learn how to use your rear brake correctly. Correct. And, mm-hmm. and then on top of that, the bike is lighter. So if you're going to be practicing skills and things like that, and you know, you're going to be picking this thing up 200 times in a day, that's the bike you rather pick up. Absolutely. Aside from the fact that mechanically you're not worried about, you know, uh, the, the valves being adjusted, the, you know, all of these other things that go along with the four stroke. So 
but that was what I was thinking. I'm like, what about building like a, a, a two stroke with the with, you know, a rally light setup, right? You know, Sonora Tower, or maybe even just the handlebar mount setup. Um, but my my thing is always the gas mileage. Is could you get the gas mileage out of it? So I don't you know, I don't know. You you can't get the gas mileage out of it, unfortunately. I mean, you, you could put tanks on it and stuff, but then that defeats the power to the weight ratio, mm-hmm. you know, of the two stroke. You know, with, with Luis, Luis would have to carry a, a bottle of oil with him and basically pre-mix it as he was filling his tank at a normal gas station. Gotcha. You know, it was, um, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, things that he had to do that were unorthodox and, you know, in order for us to race that bike. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the 150, hands down, was, uh, I mean, it's, it's one of the most incredible two-strokes I've ever had the pleasure to work on. I mean, and how reliable it is and, and uh, you know, what we put that thing to and what it's capable of doing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, it's highly impressed. Uh, would we do it again on a 150? No. Um, you know, in 2016, it was either 16 or 17, uh, RC Concepts, a French race team, mm-hmm. they did it on a 125 Husky mm-hmm. um, down there. So, you know, it's it's been done. But the reason Luis wanted to do it, he wanted to be the first Argentinian in his country's history to finish the Dakar on a small two-stroke displacement bike. Gotcha. And that's why he chose to do that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. um, you know... There's stories, yeah, building the, the bike out in the middle of a sand dune using a, a silicone bracelet, um, you know, cancer bracelet uh, to make a head gasket. These are all all real stories. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, there's going to be a part two to this. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Dude, I, I really appreciate you taking time uh, to be on here and, uh, and, and talk adventure. No, absolutely. And I, I'm so happy to, to have had the opportunity to be on here. It's, yeah. uh, it's definitely a passion of mine. And, and there's a lot of people out there I look forward to meeting and, and uh, a lot of people that, that know me. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you right now, I apologize. I'm not great with names and faces and stuff like that, uh, especially if it's on Facebook. Because mm-hmm. um, you just don't see everybody on a daily basis. So it's hard to, to remember who's who. But uh, yeah. certainly if you ever bump into me, man, just uh, reach out and shake my hand i'd love to love to meet you yeah no no no. yeah so i you know hopefully we get more people into the bivouacs and they can get uh they can get to know you guys and 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 the team and what you guys are doing and and at least check out the rig because that thing's badass oh you know and and just to to support the the american rally originals dave pearson and mo hart and kyle and all those guys paul and you know i mean what they're doing and and to 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 just kind of be on the coattails of that or to, to be with them, you know, I, I'm so, I'm proud of them. I mean, that's, that's so amazing, you know? So, I mean, there's so many, so many good things that are happening within the world of, of rally. It is. And I and the biggest thing is like how fast it's growing here stateside. Huge. Yeah. And it's like, so Huge. now it's like how, like what's the, now that we've acknowledged that it's growing, it's like, okay, what's that next, what's that next thing that needs to happen to where it just blows up and everybody goes, I can do this. Right. You know, well, hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll make that happen. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> hopefully that next thing will come from us and, uh, everybody will be, uh, you know, vying to, to learn how to, yeah, to how rally. To so, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And we send everybody, Jimmy will be uh, Jimmy Lewis. Uh, you know, he won't know what to do with himself. He's got so many people lined up. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sweet. 
All right, sir. Well, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Again, I really appreciate you taking time, and uh, and then we'll uh, we'll chat offline and, and talk some one hundred and fifty stories and, and and bikes and more. Gosh, look forward to it. Awesome. All right, Scott. Thank you, sir. Victor, you have a wonderful day, bud. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. So that was a wrap. Okay. So Scott Spears, right from KTM and Freedom Rally Racing, and I, I know him from the Freedom Rally Racing team. Um, you know, and, and what those guys are doing in the Kansas City uh, rally team as well. Uh, Freedom Rally Racing, Kansas City Racing. See, I even get it confused. But it's basically it's two teams. Their and their their mission, right? And and if you guys heard the episode of a few weeks back uh, where we talked to Robert Mann, uh, who heads that team, is the idea is just get more people involved in the sport and offer a support to those people that you can go out, go to these rally events, and you've got your mechanics, you've got your guys. You know, I can tell you right now that going to a rally rate event is easier than going to a Baja racing event where uh, you have to have way more support, way more people involved just to be at the event, not even before the event, but just being at the event. You need pit stops. You need to if you don't have that or or even then you need to have your crew that's going to be uh, hopscotching down the peninsula or down the route. And then you need to have another paid service like Baja pits or something like that. That's going to be helping you with fuel and remote areas and things like that. So there's, there's a lot more moving pieces personnel wise when it comes to trying to race a Baja event, which then means more hotel rooms, more food, uh, more gas expenses, more vehicles, more things like that. So it's not, the name is there. The experience is there. If it's a bucket list item, absolutely get that off that bucket list, get down there. But at the same time, know that, you know, in a rally rate event, it's very different. It's rally rate event is can still be family oriented, but they're not required to do as much work. Right. They're at the bivouac. They're there. They can help uh, if it's a supported rally like that. Um, usually the routes and everything is like it's all predetermined, even though you don't know where you're going. Um, it's definitely something that's a lot logistically is a lot easier once you're at the event. Now, if you're traveling from around the world, it's a little bit more difficult, but then that's why, uh, things like the Kansas city rally team and freedom rally racing have the ability to help riders that are traveling abroad or traveling from abroad to these events here stateside. Uh, so again, it's very, very awesome, uh, to be able to talk to somebody. And again, Scott is the one, like I saw him and I see what he does. He is the one wrenching on the bikes and from, telling like literally like this was you know something that uh we talked about with robert is like he will he would tell no the bike's not ready no you're not going out on that bike why because he's putting his name on it and wants to make sure that that bike is 100 percent. and and yeah i mean the bike is 100 percent. it's an amazing bike everything was done very nicely on it and like i said there's a lot of detail work that goes into it it, it yeah rally factory replica uh but there's still things that you want to check and you want to make sure and then you know each bike is a hand-built piece you know, and there's a certain art form to making sure that they're a hundred percent. So, uh, if you got a bike in the garage and you're looking at that, spend the time with it. You know, I'm right now I'm thinking and, and all of these things that we talked about, I'm like, okay, you know what? I need to go back into, uh, into the garage. I need to take a look at the 790, and I just need to start from the front to the back or the back to the front and just go over every single thing, pivot bearings, the chain, the rear tank that's on it, the pegs, you know, all of that stuff. Like I mentioned when I opened up the show, right? You know, getting rid of this hydraulic clutch thing. I love it. I love the concept of it. But honestly, I didn't get the bang, you know, what I thought I was going to get out of it. Me personally, the next person that, you know, I, I, I sell this to or whatever, they're, you know, that might be their their jam. You know, they may like that more than the cable thing. I don't know. But at the end of the day, what I do know is, is that 
spending the time, investing the time with your bike and making sure that it fits you correctly, uh, that you can enjoy riding it is, is an actual investment. Buying a motorcycle generally is not an investment. I'll tell you right now. And the, and, and I hope you guys muted that part. Uh, if your significant other is listening and they see, see, he told that, but no, it's, Okay, you you've got it right. You know, it, it, and it's therapy. And I encourage anybody that's never ridden a motorcycle uh, that has a significant other that rides or or a friend that rides, whatever, jump on the back and go for a ride and just see. You'll you'll know what I'm talking about after. But the only thing more than than purchasing that motorcycle is is dialing it in to what you want to do and setting it up for yourself. So you make it just that much more enjoyable. Does the brake is the brake lever in the right spot? Are the handlebars in the right spot? My hands don't go numb. My, I can reach the brake just so, you know, everything there is the seat comfortable, the peg height. I mean, all of these things play into the, can you ride the bike? And then it's one thing on a road bike that you're going to stick to the street, you know, the ergonomics while sitting down and all that stuff. And then it's another bike when you're going to be going off road, you're going to be riding it in a, in a more spirited manner. Uh, you may be loading it. Like, you know, we, we listened to Scott and what he was talking about, you know, going to the rally and, and just having this 1290 super loaded down, you know, how are you going to ride it? What are you going to intend it? And suspension guys that have worked on bikes for a long time, especially on the adventure bike side of things, they know, you know, I've worked with guys out of the Beamer shop. And when we were talking about, you know, some of the, the rear shocks and things like that, uh, and setting a bike up for a customer, you know, how often do you ride with luggage? How much does the luggage weigh? How much do you weigh? Do you ride with a passenger? What percentage of time? So all of these things key into how a bike is going to handle and how a bike is going to work for you. And so as mentioned, you know, don't give them the DMV weight, you know, give them the, give them the real weights, give them, you know, realistically sit down and think about, you know, what gear you're going to be taking, what you really need. We talked about that as well as, you know, like, okay, when it comes to gear, are you shopping at, you know, uh, at the local, you know, superstore, like a Walmart or a target or, or one of those, you know, places and just buying, you know, a tent and buying a gear and, oh, this will fit. Or are you purposely going and strategically going and looking for the backpacking type gear where it's very light, uh, very compact. It's designed to be traveled with, you know, are, are you looking at that? You know, there, there's a lot of things to consider, you know, so the more pre-work you do, it makes it easier when you're actually there and out riding. Cause the last thing you want to do is a hundred miles from home, figure out that you screwed up and this is just too much weight on the bike. Uh, or worst part is doing the entire loop, getting all the way back home and realizing you never opened your left case or your right case or your top case to get anything out of it, it means you carried all of this stuff in there for no reason. So, you know, I don't know. Well, maybe we'll revisit that and do another episode uh, talking about, you know, how to pack for an adventure and that kind of thing. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that comes about. Uh, but I definitely I definitely think it's worth a worth a share. But anyway, in the meantime, guys, don't forget, it'll make sense when you get there. Enjoy the ride. All right, that is a wrap for the Chasing Waypoints podcast this week. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you like what you heard. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a bunch of others. Also, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook under Chasing Waypoints, Instagram, Chasing Waypoints underscore official, and, of course, 
the YouTube under Chasing Waypoints. Hope everybody has a good week. We will see you guys for the next episode. Remember, shiny side up, and don't forget to tag us. We want to see where you guys are riding and what you guys are up to. Have a great week.